0: Welcome once again to Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOM, LP, FM, Chapel Hill, and Carrboro. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 11 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio In Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio En Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919 968 4774. Radio in vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISAM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio En Vivo is supported by North Carolina State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values, shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences and humanities, the center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge, and fostering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting, visiting the GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu GES, and follow them on Twitter at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio In Vivo is proud to welcome yet another underwriter, Gene-Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. GeneCentric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the cancer subtype platform. More information is available at GeneCentric.com. WCOM and Radio In Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. On this week's edition of Radio in Vivo, we are going to take a whirlwind tour of the solar system with North Carolina State Planetary Geologist Dr. Paul Byrne. With man-made exploration reaching the outer reaches of the solar system and beyond, we now know more than ever about the complex and sophisticated processes governing the, the planets and other celestial objects and we are poised to learn even more in the years to come. New tools and new technologies will allow us to learn more and more about the planets, which in turn will lead to new understanding of our own big blue marble, planet Earth. A native of Ireland, Paul has a B.A. in geology and a Ph.D. in planetary geology from Trinity College, Dublin. Following his education, he spent five years working with NASA, which we will hear about, and he joined the NC State faculty in 2015. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Marine, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences within the College of Sciences. Paul Byrne, welcome to Radio In Vivo.
1: Hi, Ernie. Thanks uh, for the invitation. Great to be here.
0: Paul, to get us started, tell us exactly what is a planetary geologist? That's a
1: great question. Okay, so a planetary geologist, on the face of it, is somebody who takes what we know of the geology of Earth and applies that to our understanding of other planetary bodies. Um, so, geology as a discipline on Earth is a few hundred, uh, 300 years old. Um, it started off with natural philosophers looking at the landscape, trying to understand why Earth looks the way it does and particularly since the 1960s, with the advent of plate tectonic theory, the ability to quantify the geology of Earth has really dramatically increased. So we have a pretty good working idea of certainly the first few tens of miles of the crust of Earth and the last few hundred million years of Earth geology. And we have a great deal of information about that. Planetary geology has been a thing since about the 60s, when we began to send spacecraft to other bodies in the solar system, and we began to recognize landforms and phenomena on those bodies that look a bit like what we see on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so the reasoning is, under the assumption that the same processes operate on these other worlds, we can use our understanding of geology of Earth to understand other planets. That's what a planetary geologist is, in short, basically.
0: Okay, very good. Well, Paul, what got you interested in the field? Uh, Judging from your educational background, uh, it seems like you decided to pursue planetary geology relatively early on.
1: Right, Uh, although I should say, from the beginning, I didn't know that a, planetary geology was a thing you could do, and I also didn't really know that geology is a thing you can do. I gather from, I've been working in the US now for, for six and a half years, and I understand that With the exception of, say, earth science courses that are available, often a lot of students come out of high school without necessarily understanding that geology is a a thing you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not widely covered at second level, and it's certainly not in Ireland. And so you go to the university, I went into university to do physics, I figured that that would be some way of studying the the galaxy, and I had no idea that geology was an option. And so it was only at the end of my first year of undergrad uh, that I looked back and I had taken a geology course essentially to kind of make up some credits. And I realized I've actually been interested in this stuff since I was three. I was interested in the stars and the planets and moons and how they got made and uh, volcanoes and other planets. Mm -hmm. But I had no idea what that was called or, or... how you'd even get into that so so yes i wanted to be a planetary geology since i was about three but didn't realize didn't it. <laughs> no that's what it was called I, I, you know astronomy <laughs> astrophysics that's the stu- sort of stuff you know culturally that's often what you get exposed to yeah um as i say even geology which is a vast discipline that covers everything from water quality to oil and gas exploration to geohazards. is it's such a vast discipline but it's not something that a lot of people come as university knowing is even an option you know, a w- often a well-paid option um, a lot of what we do and what we teach at, uh, at NC State for geology really is often focused on career building skills that are I- relevant across the geoscience discipline but inside that there's this planetary stuff which is cool and <laughs> anytime I go and talk to you about this they get enthused because this stuff interests people but it is not a widely known discipline and so when I went to university as I say it wasn't something that was on my radar although once I realized that was an option then I had to pursue this because I think this stuff is really interesting
0: Absolutely. Well, you, you've certainly done, done quite well with it, although, uh, as you say, it's probably not a, a real uh, career builder as such. Uh, outside of academia at least.
1: Right, so it's something that I, I make, I go to great pains to try and convey to my students that let's say they do a PhD in, in planetary geology on the face of it. It's most students, most people who go to university will not end up as faculty. That, that's just for a bunch of reasons. The discipline isn't big enough to support that many people. Most people don't want to be academics. Yeah. So when you do these kinds of programs and you study them, you know, I teach planetary geology within a broader framework of earth geology. You learn exp- you learn skills and you gain expertise in a range of topics that help you understand Earth. Right, so much of that work is it's data analytics. It's understanding how to make sense of often incomplete data sets. I happen to apply it to planetary, um, but a lot of what we do uses skills that are v- widely accessible and, and and useful in a whole host of in, of, of industries. Taking a PhD, for example. It doesn't really matter what your PhD topic is five, 10 years down the line. What yeah, matters right. is the skill set, the set of skills you've, you've developed, time management, project management, being able to work through often incomplete and difficult data sets to make sense of something. And industry values that enormously. So you're right, planetary geology is not a mainstream career. Um, however, it, it does have some stuff that's interesting for us to understand. So I, mangi- I mentioned at the beginning that we use our understanding of geology of other planets or rather our understanding of geology of Earth to understand other planets. And the benefit of that is it's too expensive to send people, right now at least, to other worlds. So we have to use our understanding of this world and kind of apply it then. But much of our planet's history is lost to us because Earth is a very active planet. We have plate tectonics, we have weather, we have erosion, we have vegetation, we have human activity. Mm. All of those together help remove and erode uh, millions and millions of years of history. Those processes don't work to the same extent, if at all, on other planetary bodies. So when we study Mars or the Moon or Mercury or Pluto, in a way, we're seeing a glimpse of what Earth would have looked like way back when. So planetary geology is useful for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it scratches an academic interest, right, a niche we have. But it also provides us a broader context for understanding how planets behave in general, including our own, like you alluded to at the beginning of the interview. And so understanding other planetary surfaces tells us what are the basic rules that govern how planets behave? And that has all kinds of implications for our own world, for our climate, for where the planet has come from, where it's likely to go, and that arguably biggest question of all, which is life. What do you need for a world to be able to evolve and sustain life? Planetary geology is part of the toolkit we have to try and tackle those questions.
0: I see, very good. Well, before we get into your, uh, your current research, Paul, Tell us a little bit about your NASA years uh, before you joined academia. Uh, you, you did some fascinating things in those years. Right.
1: I was, I was very fortunate. I worked on NASA's Messenger mission to Mercury. Messenger was a spacecraft that was launched in, in August 2004. I hadn't finished university at that point. Um, and it was dispatched on a six and a half year journey to go orbit the innermost planet, Mercury, which really until then was a very enigmatic world. Mercury is the closest planet to the sun. It's relatively small. It's not much bigger than our moon. It's very deep in the sun's gravity well, which makes it very difficult to get a spacecraft to orbit Mercury, because all that spacecraft wants to do is fall into the sun. It's also so close to the sun, that it's very difficult to point a telescope at Mercury because it's very, very close to the glare of the sun. Ah. So really, until the 2000s, we didn't know very much about Mercury at all. So NASA designed and dispatched the spacecraft. It left in 04. It made orbit in March 2011. And that summer, I joined the Carnegie Institution of Washington in Washington, DC, as a postdoc on the Messenger mission. And for four amazing years, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be a team associate. I was involved in the mission in in processing and analyzing the data, you know, photographs. We had gravity data. We had topographic data. We had chemical data, and we were basically taking all these data of, of, of a world we really didn't know, trying to make sense of them, put them together, and, and work out basically what the geology of Mercury would tell us. And, and I work very closely with people who study the interior of, of Mercury or even the atmosphere. It has a very, very thin transient atmosphere. We called it an exosphere. Uh, understanding the, co- the chemical composition of the surface and, and, and taking those different disciplines uh, and putting them together and putting those people in a room together. Uh, it was an amazing experience to understand both how missions are de- designed and developed and flown and, and executed, but also to understand the kinds of things we could say about planetary bodies. I mean w- Messenger revolutionized our understanding of Mercury. Prior to that mission, we'd only we, the, the Mariner 10 spacecraft was dispatched there in the 70s by NASA. Mariner 10 only saw half of the surface of Mercury, so literally half of the planet was totally unknown to us. We didn't know what it looked like. Messenger not just open our eyes to the entire world and told us about its history and its interior workings and what it's made of. It, it gave us a, another data point for understanding how planets work. And being involved in that mission, particularly as an early career scientist, as a you know, newly minted PhD student, I was a, my first postdoc, it was an amazing experience to see how those missions work. The amount of planning, I, I came on that mission very late. It already made uh, orbit of Mercury by the time I started. It had done three flybys prior to that. It had spent six and a half years in space. And the development uh, timeline for these missions, you know, four to five years. And, and even before then, people were writing proposals. So I came into the game very late. Mm-hmm. Even then, it was an amazing experience to see the amount of work that goes into s- this, the clever solutions to challenges. To take a spacecraft not much bigger than an office desk, to fly it into space for six and a half years, and then to make orbit around a planet that's 100 million kilometers away. I mean, that's astounding. And then for it to work, yeah. and for the camera to, to send pictures back, and for it to point the right way, and for the you know spacecraft to do the commands we sent it to is astounding. And, And the only reason that mission ended was because ultimately the spacecraft, as small as it was, ran out of fuel. It ran out of fuel that would allow it to retain its orbit in a safe way, and so the decision was made, I mean, th- this was planned from the beginning, that eventually it would be crashed. It was supposed to operate for one year. It operated for a little over four Earth wow. years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the observations that we got were still, we're gonna, we have another 10 years out of us to kind of trawl through those data and make sense of them. Um, and then in April 2015, it was it was gently landed on the surface of Mercury at about five miles per second, and, and the mission ended. But it was an amazing experience as a, an early career person. The problem is that there are so few missions right now that a comparatively few early career people are able to get involved in these. Uh, That's a real issue for our career, for our discipline going forward. How do we get more young people involved in missions, some of which take a decade to plan and another decade to fly? Mm -hmm, Um, So I was definitely lucky to get experience with that. Um, And as I've heard people, other people who've worked on other missions, you you drink the Kool-Aid, you know what you're missing when you're no longer on a mission. So a lot of people in in, in the planetary science community are often looking to try and get that opportunity, that next opportunity to get on the next mission, because it doesn't matter where it's going, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to give us new observations and raise new questions. And that is one of the forefronts of human exploration right now.
0: Sure. Well, it's, it's interesting that you, uh, you describe the long-term nature of these projects, because uh, obviously to get to any other uh, body in the solar system, it takes a very long time.
1: It absolutely does. Even going to the moon, depending on the kind of orbit you pick and and ultimately what dictates the kind of orbit you take, is the size of the engine you have. And Mm -hmm. that in turn is basically how big a rocket do you have to put you into orbit. And that basically is governed by how much money do you have. right? So physics will dictate this, but money dictates the the physics we have to contend with. So if you had a very, very powerful rocket, you could put a very large motor on it, a very large fuel tank, and you could get places a little faster than we do right now. Part of the reason that MESSENGER took six and a half years to go to Mercury... does not take six and a half years to go in a straight line from Earth to Mercury. You could do it in a few months. The problem is that the spacecraft was small. It had a small engine. Uh, The second it left Earth, it was going too fast. Uh, It's basically going to accelerate into the sun all the way down. And so NASA engineers were extremely clever in the trajectory they developed. And they determined that if it did one flyby of Earth, two flybys of Venus, and three flybys of Mercury for a total of six flybys, with each of those flybys slowing the spacecraft down just enough... After six and a half years, it would eventually circle back on the fourth approach to Mercury. It would be going slow enough that its little engine could get it into orbit. If you had unlimited money or warp drive, you wouldn't face those constraints. Um, The Apollo astronauts took about four days to get to the moon. They had a gigantic rocket getting them in there. The the amount of money behind the Apollo program was, was unrivaled. Uh, to go to the Moon now, often uh, an orbit may take a few months, because you have a relatively small engine, you've got a relatively small amount of thrust, and you thats and it's an economic way of doing it. But it, it does mean that it takes a very long time to get places. To go to Pluto, the New Horizons spacecraft, which was launched in January 2006, it finally made its fly-past of Pluto. It couldn't possibly have orbited Pluto, it was going far too fast, and far too small a, a vehicle for it to slow down enough. Uh, this thing, the size of a grand piano, a nuclear-powered grand piano, it took over nine years to get to Pluto, um, and that was with going one of the or basically one of the fastest vehicles we've ever built, and and it, it increased its speed after it did a flypast of Jupiter. So nine years to Pluto. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, one thing that that's often missed, I think, in in science fiction, which a lot of people who do planetary stuff grow up watching. Uh, the public will watch these shows, and, and they're great, but they give uh, a misleading viewpoint. I think if I just have gigantic spaces, it takes nine years to get to Pluto. Um, Human beings, I'm sure, will eventually start traveling to Mars. That's going to be months minimum. Um, The other star systems are way off the table for the foreseeable future, simply because no matter how much energy and money you have, the distances are so vast. Like you say, the planning for these things and the flight times before you ever get a single picture back can be measured in years, if not decades.
0: What amazes me about these many missions and the vast distances that are involved is the ability to maintain communications with these spacecraft both in both directions and send you know commands to the spacecraft and receive data back it's, it's incredible remarkable.
1: It really is remarkable in terms of the scope and the scale of this. So for example, NASA uses what's called the Deep Space Network, and um, Roscosmos, the Russian Space Agency, and ESA, the European Space Agency, JAXA, the Japanese one. they all have a similar system, and they'll alf- awful, al- also often piggyback on each other's uh, signals. But the Deep Space Network is a network of three complexes around the Earth, one in Australia, one in Spain, and one in the US, that NASA maintains. These gigantic dishes, some of them are, are you know, 10 meters across, some of them are far bigger. And the idea of the DSN and how it's distributed is that at any one point, at least one part of Earth is facing every part of the solar system. So we always have at least one set of dishes communicating with the spacecraft. You can go on to Google. You can Google DSN, and it will show you in real time what spacecraft are awake and which ones are communicating with Earth. It's a remarkable just to kind of get a sense of what's out there. That's not including any of the Earth observation ones or any of the commercial ones or the weather ones, anything like that at all. This is just the deep space interplanetary ones. But it is amazing to think that you can you can control a spacecraft. You can You can find a beam of radio waves from something so far away, billions of miles away, and you can still upload and download commands that said it's challenging the new horizons probe had a procedure by which immediately after flying past pluto in uh, in july 2015 it it broadcast home the most compressed artifact laden figures and images that the camera could take you could you could possibly make super compressed because if something were to happen to that spacecraft you wanted to get something down for the 9 years of flight yeah uh, and then the idea was that it would it would it would send a burst of this material back and then over this this following year and a bit it was slowly trickling back data to Earth. Now, at some point about a year and a bit ago, all those data are finally safely back on Earth, so we now have everything from the Pluto approach, including relatively high-res images that were not compressed. But to, to the challenge to manage the bandwidth, you know, I'm not so young. I, I remember 14.4 kilobit modems and the dial-up, <laughs> and that is probably an order of magnitude faster than what New Horizons was able to be in these images back, you know, bit by bit from the other part of the solar system. I mean, it really is incredible to think just how challenging it is to collect those data. So when you see a photo, it's easy to see this on the press release or on the news. You see a photograph of Pluto. It's very hard to know by looking at that image just how much work and how hard it was to get that photograph back. Uh, But it's amazing that this happens. NASA is developing new technology they hope to fly in the next few sets of missions where they're going to use lasers instead of radios. They can make a much tighter beam Mm -hmm. with higher energy and therefore greater data bandwidth. That would allow us to more accurately control, more precisely control spacecraft, uh, get larger data volume back, um, but it really is remarkable that we can make this thing at, uh, work at all. You may have noticed in the news a few days ago the Voyager 1 spacecraft was commanded to fire its thrusters. Um, after 37 years these thrusters, um, amazingly the thrusters worked, I mean that just tells yeah. you how well built yeah. these things are, but sure. it took 19 hours for the signal to get to the spacecraft from Earth and another 19 hours for the spacecraft to be in the signal back, telling Earth that it had done it correctly. 38 hour round trip, that's 38 light hours Round trip. It, it, it's, it's inconceivable for us to realize just how vast space is. So yeah, sending even a small signal, a few kilobits, to a spacecraft to tell it to do something, nineteen hours for wow. that signal to get there.
0: Yeah, that that is amazing. Well, Paul, um, let's turn to your uh, your current line of research. Uh, I know that you you have three principal fields of study. So would you briefly describe each one of them for
1: us? Sure. So one of the th- principal things that I'm interested in is. is, is I guess the way I frame this to to people is I'm interested in understanding why planets look the way they do. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that kind of interests me is what processes, what phenomena have taken place to produce the landforms we see in other worlds. Um, And I put a a, a primary focus on what we call tectonic processes and volcanic processes. And the reason those two are so important is because you get impact craters for free. You get those all over the solar system. They're presumably all over the universe. Uh, Impact craters are formed when something collides with something else. And you don't need very much energy for this to happen. You just need gravitational collisions. Vulcanism and tectonism are two processes that happen inside a world that has energy. So if you see evidence of these of these landforms, these these processes haven't taken place, you can say something straight off the bat about the fact that at some point the interior of that body was hot. Yeah. It was probably warm because it had you know energy left over from when it got made, when it accreted. And often, bodies have radioactive minerals inside them, and, and as they decay, they produce heat, and that drives activity. On Earth, the most extreme, if you like, manifestation of that process is that we have plate tectonics. The outer layer of Earth is divided into these segmented plates, these rigid blocks, and they float around on, on a relatively soft, rocky mantle. And plate tectonics, many people argue, are, are, is intrinsic to Earth. Right? It, it, it helps Um, us be a habitable world. It it drives um, species migrating around the world. It it drives a balance of nutrients from the interior to the exterior. It's arguably a fundamental process. No other world in the solar system appears to operate under plate tectonics the way that ours does. And and certainly observations of things like places like Mars and Mercury and, and, and the Moon tell us that volcanic and tectonic processes did operate on those worlds, but they ended a very long time ago. Maybe there's a little bit of activity today. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to send a spacecraft to Mars next year called Insight. Insight's going to be a, have a seismometer on board, and one of the questions that Insight's going to answer when it lands on Mars is, is Mars tectonically active? But we know that it's not tectonically active like Earth is now. We know that just from the images from orbit. Sure. We want to know what's happening. Is the interior croaking a little bit? You know, what's going on down there? Um, we know that there are moonquakes. We have we've had seismic data from the Moon, from the Apollo missions. We know that there's still heat in the interior of of, of the Moon. We know that Venus is hot. We know that Mercury is hot in the interior. But the amount of activity, tectonic and volcanic activity, is much, much less in these worlds. Volcanic activity is this material being melted from the interior and making out of the outside, or lava, volcanoes. That's how it's manifest on Earth. And we see those same landforms on other planets. Mm -hmm. Tectonic activity is basically how stuff breaks. You know, is stuff moving side to side, is it moving up and down? Is the crust breaking? Are there faults? Same stuff we see on Earth. We use the same techniques on Earth to understand these other worlds. If you see evidence of tectonic and or volcanic activity on other worlds, it tells you that at some point it was active. But a key aspect of my research is trying to understand when did these processes operate? When did they stop and why did they stop? Sure. To what extent were they, were they active? Were they active intermittently or were they active for a long time, a very long time ago?
0: So it, it seems like uh, Earth then is, is really an outlier.
1: Absolutely it is. So one of the courses I teach is a straight-up regular geology course. And, and my background is in straight-up regular geology. Like I said, I, I did never got formally educated as an undergrad in planetary processes. It's only in the last two or three years teaching at State that I've realized Earth is an amazing world to learn the geology of, and if you want to work as a geologist in the oil exploration field or in geohazards or in in hydrogeology, you must learn Earth geology. But if you wanted to teach somebody about geology in general, Earth is a terrible place to teach them, (laughs) because on Earth we have all these processes. We have plate tectonics. We have weather. We have oceans. The most common landform in the solar system, geologically, is an impact crater. But there's only a few dozen on Earth that are preserved because all the really big ones are gone because they got eroded. Mm. So if you wanted to educate someone about geology in general, you wouldn't pick Earth. You would pick Mars and Mercury and the Moon. And you would draw the, com- the, the similarities and the, and the differences with them. This is what gets to a broader issue of understanding why Earth is so special. We yet still don't have a good explanation for why Earth has plate tectonics. And we certainly don't know quite why plate tectonics started. Earth did not get born with plate tectonics. It developed them at some point after it got made. And in the next one to two billion years, which is insanely long for us to think on, but not very long for planets. Our Sun will last another five billion years. Mm-hmm. In the next one to two billion years, Earth's plate tectonics will stop. Apostles will shut down. Earth in two billion years will look like Venus does today. That's why understanding these other worlds is really important. It tells us wh- you know where we come from, where we're headed. But you're right, Earth is an outlier. It is not a good place to get a sense of what geology of planets looks like in general, but it is really important to understand why it looks the way it does, because it seems that it is unique. It seems it is distinctive, and we don't yet know why that is.
0: Well, you you couch this in terms of what you you have termed comparative planetology, right? Uh, which I, I assume uh, means all of the planets, yes. You know, uh, impacting each other and, and like that. So tell us a little bit more about that concept, and and I also wanted to uh, inquire whether there are any practical applications. Uh, of this work, and, and no is an acceptable answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's always kind of a tricky one. You know, often the question is, why do, we send, why do we spend all this money doing these things? Let me come back to that. Sure. Certainly in terms of a comparative plantology, that is the phrase we use to kind of, it's a catch-all term to encapsulate the idea that we compare and contrast places, right? So e- even on Earth, comparative geology is often done. You know, we, we'll understand, say, the basin and range province in the western United States, right? Nevada, that part of the world. It's an amazing place for, to understand geology we can understand that place pretty well, and then we can draw comparisons with other places on Earth. Maybe we don't study as well. Maybe it's hard to get to. Maybe it's an older example. Maybe it's in a politically unstable area. It's difficult to do some field work there. So we will compare and contrast places on Earth all the time. Mm -hmm. The idea of comparative planetology is just taking that to the next step, right? So we we take, like I said earlier, we take our idea of of how geology works on Earth, how it's changed, and we apply that to other worlds. So for example, we know there are gigantic volcanoes on Mars. I mean, these things are superlative. The biggest one is called Olympus Mons. Olympus Mons is about the size of Arizona. It stands about 13 miles tall. You know, It's bigger than Monolo. It's bigger than Everest. It's such a big volcano. And Mars is such a relatively small world that if you were on the bottom of this volcano, you wouldn't know you were on a volcano because the summit of that volcano would be over your visible horizon. I mean, you know, this thing is that big. Wow. But mm-hmm. we still recognize it as a volcano, even though it's acres bigger than anything you see on Earth. Because it has all the physical properties of volcanoes. It has lava flows on its flanks. It has what we call a caldera complex at the top, these pits that form at the top when lava gets evacuated. It's got all the features that make it a volcano. So we can we can take our understanding of big shield volcanoes on Earth, including Hawaii, and we can say, okay, I recognize volcanoes on Mars. And then from there, well, I have to invoke all the other things that Earth has to make volcanoes from Mars. So that's the idea of comparative planetology. And like I said a few minutes ago, it works both ways. Maybe the southern part of Mars, or the southern hemisphere of Mars is very heavily cratered. it's very old. But that's probably what Earth looked like before plate tectonics got started. Or we look at, say, parts of the atmosphere and the surface of Titan, which is uh, Saturn's largest moon. The atmosphere composition there might be similar to what Earth's atmosphere composition was a very, very long time ago, four billion years ago. Mm -hmm. So understanding the idea of going both ways means that we can look at these other worlds and we can make these observations and we can get an insight into what our world looked like when it was an alien world, you know, long before we have any evidence preserved today. And then the third facet of that is that we can compare planets with each other. You know, we've, we've taken these data we have from Messenger, from Mercury, and now we can compare Mercury with Mars, with Venus, with the Moon, with Earth. And that just helps us understand what the rules are that govern these things in general. And it's only when you start to compare worlds side by side that you start to see what the, what the systematic patterns are. Hey, and you know, a lot of them have this sort of type of impact crater, or a lot of them don't have this, or they have, they have this kind of volcanism, but they don't have this other kind of volcanism, or their atmospheres are mainly made of this material, but ours isn't, why is that? Those fundamental questions you can start to get at them when you can compare all the planets side by side. You know, on the face of it they're vastly different, but you start to see the rules governing how these things behave. That has huge implications for planets in general, which essentially is the field of exoplanetary science right now. And that's why our understanding of this solar system is not just useful for Earth, but it's useful for our understanding of planets in general, of which we now know there are many thousands and probably millions.
0: Sure. Well, that we were going to get to that, but this uh, seems like a good time to go ahead and explore beyond the reaches of the solar system. Uh, I, I looked it up, and I think there were uh, something like 3,700 documented exoplanets at this point. And it's amazing. It's it remarkable. Huge <laughs> number.
1: Exoplanets are a fascinating thing to talk about because what I think is interesting is again. You know, I came up as a kid watching Star Wars and all these sorts of shows. Uh, every time, you know, our heroes would go to a new star system, there'd be planets everywhere. And the planets would be big and small, and one would be, you know, lush jungle, and one would be desert, and one would be water. Until 1995, we had no definitive scientific evidence that there were any planets anywhere else outside our solar system. Now, hundreds of years ago, philosophers talked about, presumably, surely there must be. And, you know, even a few decades before, in the mid 20th century, it was pretty clear that. Probably they're where because we can see lots of stars made of the same stuff that our star is made of. And if our star is a very common type of star and it's got planets, then why wouldn't other ones? But mm-hmm. we didn't know this for sure until 1995. And in the, in the intervening two decades or so, our understanding of this process, of this this concept, has dramatically ballooned. Thousands of confirmed exoplanetary candidates and, and, and thousands more that are awaiting confirmation that we think, because one of the ways in which we, class, we, we determine that an exoplanet is there is we need m- two or more independent detections with two or more independent either telescopes or techniques. So it's not enough to say, we think we see this wobble in a star, which is one of the techniques that we use to try and find these things. Sure, we have to then have someone else with a different instrument say, "I see the same kind of thing with my different technique." And they, they match those measurements make, because it's very easy to get false positives. But when you've got two or more groups with two or more techniques combine their measurements, that's when we can say, definitely yes this is a world in the vast majority of cases we haven't imaged them we haven't we've have no photographs of these things we have indirect evidence there and and all the evidence is consistent so we can say okay sure we're happy to say there's a planet there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what's fascinating is that of the ones that we have found they are orbiting only a select few stars that we've actually made an effort to image that's not the result that number that you said is not the result of an of an exhaustive survey of the entire volume of space around us it's very hard to detect planets you often need certain circumstances and conditions to be satisfied for us even to have the hope of detecting them. So it's very selective. We are heavily biased in our ability to detect these because of the limitations these techniques face. So what that means is we've essentially made only a five or to ten years of concerted effort finding these things. We have very few reliable techniques. They're extremely sensitive to error. And for all that, we found thousands of exoplanets. Yeah. That's what I think is fascinating. That basically you end up with a situation where the people who made those movies and those TV shows in the 60s, and 70s, and 80s and 90s. They were right, they didn't know they were, but they were right, there are planets everywhere. And, and one of the kind of holy grails in the near term for us to determine what's out there is looking for what we call Earth-like planets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's easier to detect gigantic planets, so we now know of a lot of those. They're not great places to think about where life might evolve, at least we don't think they are. Sure. So it's much more challenging to find a planet as comparatively small as Earth is. But we're beginning to get there. We're getting ever more advanced telescopes on Earth, developing new spacecraft that would be in Earth orbit or even farther away that would be able to detect these. And it is opening our eyes to the fact that there are planets everywhere, and yeah. that's that's why our understanding of I mean, with, with millions and
0: millions of galaxies oh, it, out there it, containing it, millions and millions of stars. It, it just flies in the face of logic. That
1: it's, it's very, very hard for us to conceive, I think, of just how many planets there are. And if mm-hmm. you wanted there to be a case where there are millions, millions, millions of planets per galaxy, absolutely. There are almost certainly planets in the solar system right next door to us. Yeah. Uh, now, that yeah. doesn't say anything about whether they're habitable or they ever were habitable or they could ever be habitable. Th- that's a different issue. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are higher there and the odds are lower. But when it comes to there being planets in general, it looks like for most cases, most stars probably have at least one. Okay. And that's uh, if you think of how many stars there are—there's you know, a hundred billion in this galaxy alone. These things are legion,
0: sure. and
1: that's why comparative planetology is so important because we're not just learning about our own solar system; we're learning the rules that govern how planets get made in general. We still have a long way to go before we have all those rules filled in but we're beginning to see the patterns we're beginning to see what's out there in terms of what we're detecting and that's giving us a good idea of basically how planetary systems form in general
0: well paul what what at this point are are the biggest data gaps in your field and what are the biggest uh unanswered questions
1: right now right where to start so a lot of (laughs) what i do covers a very broad range of topics it's kind of what interests me and kind of keeps me in the field so we have some fundamental questions we don't have very many reliable ways of determining how old things are. So that's one, I'm I'm picking this off the top of my head, this is not necessarily the most pressing issue, it's one of the. So one of the ways that we work at how old planetary surfaces are, we can't go there. So what we do is we take data from the Apollo missions, where astronauts brought back lunar samples, and we can put those samples in the lab, just like we would take a, a regular rock from Earth, and we have a variety of chemical techniques we can use to work at the age. Uh, We look at, you know, all kinds of ratios of isotopes, and that tells us that something is 4.2 billion years old. You know, these ages are crazy, crazy old, you know, almost as old as the solar system. But we have an idea of how old some rocks from the moon are. And then we can use impact craters. So the idea, basically, of impact cratering is that it's a process that happens, right? Stuff hits, you know, something else and there's a big explosion and it excavates a giant hole. And like I say, impact craters are extraordinarily common throughout the solar system. And our general working assumption in most cases is that the longer you're there as a surface, the more craters you have. You've just had more time to accrue a record of cratering. So for example, we look at an area that's got lots of craters, and we'll compare that to an area that has fewer craters. The assumption is the area with lots of craters is older. Some other process, either that surface is younger, with fewer craters, or some processes like, say, lavas, volcanism, has resurfaced and we've lost a lot of craters. Or in the case of Earth, plate tectonics or oceans or weather. and so. What we try to do when we work out the ages of other parts of the solar system is we make some assumptions for how old parts of the moon are for which we think we have samples. We look at the number of craters there, and we make models. And we think, well, if it's this age, it should have this number of craters. And then we make pretty educated guesses for the number of things out there that can hit you from the asteroid belt, comets, stuff from outside the solar system. And we have a rough idea we think now of what what that population is and therefore what the rate of impact cratering per hundred years or per million years is. And so we have a rough idea now of how old something would be on the moon. And then we can make more assumptions that would tell us what that scaling ratio we call it would be to the rate at which stuff would hit Mars or hit Mercury or hit somewhere else in the solar system. But when we say something is you know, four billion years old on Mars or three billion years old on Mercury. They're educated guesses. They're good guesses. They're built on pretty solid assumptions. Mm-hmm. We have no independent check of those. None. We have no samples from these worlds. There is an ongoing effort to return samples to, from Mars to Earth that we could put. It's it's hard to quantify just how much of a jump the Apollo lunar samples provided us for understanding how planets form. I mean, you know, it was like something like 400 pounds of rock or something. And yet it was we're still studying it because in the intervening 40 years, lab technology has improved to the point where we can be much more detailed and specific in, in these assessments. And understanding these things has really opened our eyes to the rules again governing how planets form and the timings of these things.
0: Have you ever had a chance to work on moon samples?
1: I myself don't study individual samples. I tend to take a much larger scale of things, but I I, I have held in my hand slices of lunar rock. And if you look at them in the microscope, they look very different to what rocks on Earth look like, because almost every rock I've ever seen on Earth has been in the near surface, and it's been wet, because we have an awful lot of water in the hydrosphere, in the atmosphere, groundwater. There's almost no free water in the Moon. And so when you see lunar samples, they look different, they look weird. Wow. Uh, so I, I lectured at my university in Dublin for a year before I came over to the US, and I would take these samples we had uh, in my class, and I would show them to students, but I wouldn't tell them what they were. And then we would spend a whole class saying, hey, why do these things look weird? Most ca- times they were able to s- tell that they did look weird, even if they had no idea why. But those samples really have been revolutionary. To get samples from Mercury, or from Mars, would be equally revolutionary. In, in terms of our understanding of how these processes work, what these things are made of, mm-hmm. we have really, really good instruments that will tell us what the compositions of the surface of these worlds are. Sure, But they only penetrate the first few millimeters at most they don't tell you what's a kilometer down, what's 10 kilometers down. That's hard enough for us to determine for Earth. But we have mines, we have boreholes, we have you know, oil exploration wells. We have a rough idea, kind of, of what most of the upper surface of Earth is made of. We have really no idea about other planetary bodies.
0: Now, aren't, aren't the Mar- uh, Martian rovers collecting and analyzing samples on board?
1: So they are. So one of them in particular, the Mars Science Laboratory, which landed in 2012, is an extremely capable rover, and it's able to do... Uh, geochemical analysis in situ. I mean the the things it can do are incredible. It has a bunch of mass spectrometers, the type of technology we use on Earth that often can be the size of three or four tables. They condensed a few of these into something not much bigger than a microwave and they got it to land on Mars and to operate. I mean again the technology is amazing. Mm -hmm. The problem is that it is still very limited in what it can do and it No advanced rover, no matter how good, could hold a candle to what you could do in 30 labs across the world on Earth with a team Mm. of hundreds of scientists. So although Mars Science Laboratory is going to be doing this sort of stuff, its uh, follow-on, its uh, next brother rover is called Mars 2020, it's going to launch in 2020, it's going to have similar capabilities, but Mars 2020 is also going to cache rocks, at least that's the current plan, that it will go to a select few places that it will drive through, it'll trundle over to, and it will retrieve these rocks and it will store them. Unfortunately there's no plan yet as to how to get those rocks back to Earth or rather There's no money for a plan as to how to get those rocks back to Earth. So it may be another 20 years before, even if it were to cache rocks in, say, 2021, 2022, it's still going to be a long time before those rocks are back in Earth laboratories. So getting rocks from other places is extremely difficult. It's extremely expensive. But if we were to have those samples, it would really help us answer a lot of open questions. That's just an idea off the top of my head for things like the age of things and what they're made of that come to me. But... There are, some, there are f- some fundamental questions that are still outstanding uh, that we really don't even have a good handle on how to tackle. But the fact is we can now ask them. You know we're, We've been doing planetary research for 50 years mm-hmm. at this point, really, and uh, we have, I think we've got most of the basics down, uh, which is good. That's probably where we were with Earth geology perhaps 150 years ago.
0: Okay. You know? Well, um, Paul, at this point, ha- have we reached the point where man-made objects – have explored all of the important planetary bodies in, in our solar system?
1: I would say, to first order, yes. OK. Uh, the New Horizons mission to Pluto was kind of heralded as really sort of kind of taking that last box, right? With Messenger getting to Mercury, we've orbited Mercury, we've orbited Venus, we've orbited the Moon and Mars, we've sent spacecraft to orbit Jupiter and uh, Saturn, We've flown past Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. So we visited all the greatest hits. But to say that we have sort of fulfilled our exploration mantra is, is not correct. It, it, would, it would be misleading to think that we now uh, even have a rough idea of what these worlds are like. Yeah. NASA has, uh, over the last few decades, developed a kind of a, an almost an unofficial how-to in terms of how you explore. So they, they kind of frame it as saying, fly by first, then orbit, then land, then rove. And then maybe eventually humans, Mm -hmm. although that's Mm -hmm. way down the line. So if you consider flyby, orbit, land, rove, and that's a good way of doing it. That's how we did the Moon, and that's kind of how we're doing Mars. We've flown by uh, Mercury, we've orbited Mercury, we've yet to land on Mercury, and we've certainly yet to rove. We have flown past and orbited Venus. NASA has never landed a lander probe on Venus, but the Soviets did. Certainly nothing is likely to be roving on Venus for a long time. It faces some serious environmental challenges there. We have done all this stuff for the Moon, including people pulling people on the Moon. But the Moon is the only celestial body other than Earth that humans have ever visited. Uh, and as difficult and as expensive as that was, the Moon is absolutely the easiest place to get to. So that you know, kind of gives you a sense of how, how challenging this is. Sure. We're roving on Mars, but we've yet to put people there. But we're, we're ticking the box. And we understand the Moon and Mars really well now, compared to what we did a few decades ago. Mm. Um, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune are the, what we call the, the giant planets, the gas right. giants mm-hmm. and ice giants, sure. okay. going to have a hard time landing there. Yeah. But they are surrounded, in a couple of cases, by these amazing ring systems, and the Cassini mission which ended in September really just opened our eyes to how beautiful Saturn was. But these worlds all have a selection mm-hmm. of moons some of which are bigger than our biggest planet, right? Ganymede is the biggest moon of Jupiter. It's bigger than Mercury. The only reason we call Ganymede a moon is because it happens to orbit the biggest planet. But if you were to separate it from Jupiter, it would be a planet unto itself. There's We've flown past these worlds by virtue of being in orbit of Jupiter and in orbit of Saturn, but there's compelling reasons to go and actually orbit these other moons because they are planets, really, on, in their own right. Sure. To say nothing of landing. And we've flown past Pluto, but orbiting Pluto would be... Magnificent. The the flyby, as impressive as it was, really only imaged about half of the surface of, of Pluto and anything approaching a high resolution. We've got very, very low resolution data for the other half. So we still have fundamental questions. Questions like what does it look like? Forget the geology. Simply just what does it look like? Mm-hmm. We haven't answered those questions for Pluto yet. Okay. So in terms of us kind of ticking the boxes, yeah, I think now we have a rough idea of kind of the broad shape of things in the solar system. We're now beginning to focus missions on smaller bodies. right? So the Dawn spacecraft visited Vesta, and in 2015 visited Ceres, which is the largest object in the asteroid belt. So that's where Dawn is. We're going to send another mission called Psyche to the asteroid belt in a few years, and yet another mission called Lucy will go to visit what are called the Jupiter tro- Trojans, which are small bodies that, that kind of follow and, and precede Jupiter in its orbit. There's a lot of development. There's a new mission right now in uh, space called OSIRIS-REx going to visit and take a sample back and return to Earth a sample of an asteroid. Mm-hmm. So we're beginning to sort of fill in the gaps of the smaller stuff. You know, What do the asteroids look like? What do the comets look like? Getting a sample from a comet would be would be amazing for a whole pile of reasons. And again, I don't do chemistry, but it would be amazing. I mean, I can see that. Yeah. So, yeah, we've done sort of the... the, the the greatest hits of the solar system. But now we're drilling down to the fundamental questions, because all of these missions have raised more questions than they've answered, which is what they should do. Sure. And those questions sometimes don't have obvious answers, and sometimes those questions appear to be contradictory to one another. And so our understanding of the solar system is complete to the lowest order there is. It's complete a little bit, but now we need to really start kind of getting a better sense of what these worlds look like particularly against that backdrop of understanding these extrasolar planets.
0: Sure. Well, that that kind of brings us back to one of the ultimate questions in all of this, and that is the, the and you knew it was coming, the idea of life elsewhere in in the solar system or the universe. Right. Um, Now, I know that there has been some speculation that uh, some of the, the moons you've just been describing may harbor some sort of microbial level life.
1: Right, I mean this is, um, you know, depending on how you look at this thing, this is one of the questions and not the question of our time. Are we alone? Yeah, I don't think we are going to have a definitive answer for this in the near term, but I do think what we are already getting is a sense of what rules you need to follow for you to be able to have life. That's mm-hmm. what we're beginning to do. NASA has done a very good job in the last 10 or 15 years in particular. Its mantra from Mars is follow the water. And it's beginning to apply this mantra to exploring these other worlds, like these moons of Jupiter and Saturn you mentioned. Follow the water because our thinking of life, at least as we understand it, is that you need three fundamental things. You need a, an energy source of some kind. You need liquid water because it plays a role in all biology on Earth. And you need some sort of organic chemistry, organic compounds. It turns out that, back to my point earlier on, understanding volcanism and tectonism of other planets, that is driven by internal energy. That's driven by heat. So if you've got a world that has evidence of tectonic and volcanic activity, you've ticked one of those boxes already. You've got that interior heat. The next question is organic compounds, complex uh, organic chemistry. It turns out that you just point a telescope, pretty much any part of space, and you see giant molecular clouds of ethanol. You know, there's uh, crazy long chain organic compounds that exist naturally, that naturally occur in space. Uh, you know, evidence for these kind of compounds all over the solar system. Organic sludge, not life, not mm. amino acids, not proteins, but the stuff that makes up these things. Sure, seems to be ubiquitous throughout the solar system and presumably throughout the cosmos. So that's two of the three things we think you need for life that are abundantly common around the solar system. The third thing is water. Now, this is not to say that this is the only way you get life. And, and you know, I talk about this in my classes, and, and you know, the first question students will ask is, well, what about if it's carbon-based or if it's some, or rather silicon-based? What if it's something mm-hmm. that we don't recognize? We don't for a second want to, to kind of rule out there being something out there that we don't even recognize, but we won't know what to look for off the bat so it makes sense to begin to look for and to, to for the time being to hone our search for life to yeah. look for things that we would recognize as life on earth so that's kind of what limits this thing i'm not saying there aren't weird exotic kinds of life out there i hope that there are yeah. but we don't necessarily know that we would recognize them as such straight away so we look for water-based carbon-based uh life because we recognize that that's what earth is teeming with and these worlds you know, we need liquid water. These worlds have subsurface oceans. Mars had water on its surface a very long time ago. It may, it may still today have transient water flow. Mercury, forget it. No water on the surface, probably never was. Moon, same deal. Venus may have had oceans. There's weird geochemical signatures in its atmosphere that at some point way back when, Venus may have had oceans like Earth, but it certainly doesn't have any more, and it hasn't for the last probably billion years or so. Uh, So we have a rough idea that maybe water was common. That's this idea of comparative planetology. We start to see the the patterns. But Mm -hmm. we know that water is not common in the inner solar system. Earth is, again, it's unique in this regard. However, most of the water, most of the liquid water in the solar system is not on Earth. If you were an alien in those movies where aliens come and invade Earth and they start taking our water, you'd be an idiot to go to Earth (laughs) when there's a ready abundance of this stuff under the icy shells of the moons that orbit Saturn and Jupiter. In particular. Sure. We have direct evidence for a few of these things having subsurface oceans, that's what we call them, but there's an icy shell on the outside underneath the liquid water ocean. And we've got indirect evidence for perhaps a dozen more. The oceans in some of these worlds are vast. The volumes of water 10, 100 times more than all the water on the surface of Earth. The average ocean depth on Earth is about three miles, plus or minus Ganymede, this largest moon in the solar system, its ocean is 500 miles deep.
0: Wow. (laughs) I mean, it's just
1: hard to convey how much water there is there. Yeah. So if you've got, and and that has abundant evidence of volcanic and tectonic processes, that that something has been driving activity inside this world. Mm -hmm. So now you're talking about a world that has a load of water, that almost certainly has had in the past, at least, geological activity driven by heat, by energy. And we know that organic compounds exist all over the place. So these worlds are leading candidates for places for us to understand whether or not those three requirements, A, if they're present, and B, if they have allowed the generation of life. I mean, a fundamental question underpinning all of this is we don't know how life got started. We've never been able to replicate life in the lab from non-life. We can study life, we can do all kinds of weird things, we can use CRISPR DNA editing to look at bacteria, but we have never made life from non-life. Not in the yet, lab. at least. Not yet. Not yet. Despite a lot of people trying. Mm-hmm. Now, doing that and showing that we've w- that would be a, an unbelievably large step forward. Because if we could determine what that process of abiogenesis is, w- that would tell us these are the conditions you need for life to get going. At least one set of conditions. We don't know the answer to that question yet. But if we can begin to characterize these worlds in, what we, in terms of what we call their habitability, doesn't say they're habitable. But it says they could be by things like bacteria. This is what's driving a lot of exploration of the solar system by NASA and other space agencies right now, and it's really exciting to be at the leading edge of this. Because one of two things is going to happen. In the next few decades, we're either going to find life or we're not going to find life. And if we find life, and I, I don't think we're going to find little green men. I, my personal belief is that intelligent life with radio and civilizations and empires, sure, I, I'm sure they exist in the universe. They're probably so old or so young, or so far away, that they're meaningless to us in the near term. We've no real likelihood of communicating with them. Yeah. My also, I also believe that life, in terms of microbial life, is probably all over the place. My, my guess is if you look at how easy it is to get it going on Earth, if you look at how many niches in the environment are are occupied by life, if you see how hard it is to kill, like to to thoroughly sterilize something, it's hard to see how life isn't ubiquitous, even if that life is microbial. Good point. Right? But if if it happens to be the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, we find microbial life that isn't from this world, that's staggering. Because if you have microbial life, then surely somewhere with all the millions of planets in this galaxy and all the billions of galaxies, something has evolved into where we are now. But if we find in 50 years' time that there's no evidence of any m- microbial life or v- even viral life anywhere, that's a profound finding, too. Sure. Why is Earth unique? Is it really easy to make life, but it's really hard to keep it going? Is it really hard to get life going? What weird conditions all came together to make Earth the world it is today? That's why some of this work is so exciting, because it has, I think, one way or another profound implications for our understanding of, of our own world, our own history, and where we're going. That's what drives a lot of the excitement in planetary science today.
0: Wonderful. Well, Bob, believe it or not, we are just about out of time, but I had one one other question I wanted to be sure to get get into you, and that is uh, the importance of the upcoming uh, Webb Space Telescope that's going to be launched in 2019, I believe. Uh, w- what is that going to right? to Webb, field?
1: If it works, and it's a remarkably complicated, untested telescope, but if it does work, it, is, it will be revolutionary. Webb is going to be able to look into deep time and deep space, as well as providing very good observations of planets and moons in this solar system in a way that Hubble today can't. If and when Webb is up and running, it has the opportunity for us to understand really what the fundamental conditions were at the very, very early parts of Uh, the, The universe where. That has all kinds of implications for fundamentally everything, including how stars get made and how planets get made and what materials are available to make these planets and stars. Web is going to be a humongous step forward, and I, for one, can't wait to see it working.
0: I'll bet <laughs> it's going to be right up your your alley. Absolutely, I'm sure. I'll be
1: first in line to get involved with that thing.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, Paul, it's been a wonderful hour, and uh, I I can tell because I didn't even get to half of my questions. <laughs> we could do another we hour. <laughs> we didn't get to get have our mini tour of the solar right, system. right. Sure, uh, but uh, absolutely, we will we will do this again sometime soon. Thanks so much, indeed, and thanks so much for uh, joining me on Radio and Vivo, and uh, we have got some great guests lined up in the upcoming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioenvivo.net for our lineup of upcoming shows. So join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carrboro, and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the radio station, by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Now stay tuned for one of the most popular shows on the WCOM schedule, The Courage Cocktail with Leanne Mcclimont. We thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.